Welcome to the Modern Merriman Podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merriman is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian laypeople will rightly divide the word of truth. Hey, Tom. Hey, brother. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. And we are continuing our third episode on the covenant of redemption. Uh, so far, we have considered uh, what the covenant of redemption is and uh, how it has been revealed to us through scripture. Uh, we've also spent some time reflecting on what this uh, covenant reveals to us about God and uh, our triune God. Oops, excuse me. And uh, so there, there's been a lot of ground we've covered, but there's still more I'm hoping that we can discuss here uh, today. So uh, with all of the, that we've discussed so far, that there are a number of those in uh, the Reformed tradition and Reformed Christians today who deny the covenant of redemption. And I thought it might be mm-hmm. helpful for us to, to briefly have a conversation about what, you know, why that is. Yeah. Um, well, there are many people who claim uh, that the covenant of redemption is not to be found anywhere in Scripture, mm. and they they think that that the covenant of redemption is a theological imposition on the Bible, mm-hmm. and that's particularly you find that in those who adhere to a reformed theology in a more modern sense. Mm. So, you know, the the reformed tradition developed uh, this doctrine, and it it became clear clearest through. Uh, the Puritan period and the post-Reformation period, uh, but uh, in the modern period, it's it became more fashionable to deny this doctrine, and uh, really on the basis that it's speculative. Mm-hmm. And they that this group tends to demand to see the words "covenant of redemption" mm-hmm. or some explicit uh, mention of this covenant in the Bible. But I, I would submit that that's an unhealthy form of biblicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Biblicism is a way of interpreting the Bible that refuses to believe anything that isn't explicitly stated in the Bible. Mm. So, D.B. Riker, for example, defines Biblicism like this. He says, Biblicism is the rejection of everything not explicitly stated in the Bible and the dismissal of all non-biblical witnesses. Mm. Uh, So, Biblicists deny the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace, and and many other uh, biblical doctrines as well. That really is a, a really a common way of Christians today uh, reading scripture, and and yet, frankly, how much uh, truth we miss when we when we don't consider uh, the, the 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 teachings of scripture, the broader development of doctrine, mm-hmm. and the of course the tradition that then uh, reflects upon these things and 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 brings them out in the context of uh, history and the error and controversies that are faced. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I, I would argue that faithful theology doesn't only look for things that are explicitly stated in, in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Rather, faithful theology, what it's doing isn't just trying to repeat what's on the surface of the text. Mm-hmm. Instead, what it's doing is it's drawing together a whole range of scriptures and trying to understand the whole of the Bible. Uh, and it, so, it uses deduction. It uses induction and even uh, retroduction. And that's a term that basically means you look at the data that's in the Bible and you back it up and you say, what framework could explain all of the data that we see in Scripture? And mm-hmm. so, you're you're asserting something that would have to be true behind the scenes in order for what we see out front to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's where we get the covenant of redemption. It's also actually 
uh, where our doctrine of God comes from. Mm-hmm. And the doctrine of the Trinity is, you know, a lot of the, the language that we use in expressing those doctrines uh, aren't, isn't found directly in Scripture, but rather is trying to explain all the different ways that the Bible speaks uh, about God. Um, and so we won't get into them here because we dealt them with them in the last episode. But in short, we, I, I think we see this, uh, or the last two episodes ago, we see this covenant in Luke twenty two twenty nine, Isaiah 42, mm-hmm. Isaiah 53 and 54, John 17, and so on. Right. And so that's, that's one argument that some have made, even those who, who say that they're Reformed and you know, ha- are in the Reformed tradition in the modern period, that they're against the covenant of redemption. They say it's too speculative. Right. But there are other uh, objections raised, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, some uh, argue that uh, they, they make an argument against the covenant of redemption based on their own definition of covenant. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when we talked about the covenant of redemption originally, we said it's improperly so-called a covenant. It's an analogy to call it a covenant. So we tried to caveat that uh, at the very beginning. But some define covenant in such a way, and they hold, and they think of covenant so rigidly that it automatically excludes any notion of a covenant of redemption. So uh, take a single definition of covenant and they apply it to all other covenants. Um, so, for example, if you believe that all covenants – must include a curse and a threat for disobedience. Mm-hmm. So say you're taking the suzerainty covenants or the Mosaic covenant, and you think that's what a covenant really is, or even the Abrahamic, which there's a threat for failing to obey the command to be circumcised, you'd be cut off from your people. And if that's what you think a covenant is essentially, well, then the, there can't be a covenant of redemption because the father never threatened Jesus with a curse for disobedience. That's unthinkable. Mm-hmm. You know, he's impeccable. There's, he could not have sinned. He was certainly going to fulfill the terms of this covenant. Um, so, if you take one definition of covenant like that and you apply it to all covenants, then the covenant of redemption can't be a true covenant. But the problem with this is that it refuses to allow covenants to be defined on their own terms. Not all covenants in the Bible are the same. And again, I argued in a couple episodes ago that the covenant of redemption is really an analogy of a covenant. It's a way of speaking about God's eternal decree, which accounts for the divine mission of redemption without separating any of the acts of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, again, helpful clarifications, brother, in in doing that. Um, what what about those who uh, see this as a uh, attack or uh, that it's it's not consistent with the doctrine of divine simplicity. Yeah, uh, there, there are those who are very nervous about the covenant of redemption because they think it undermines the doctrine of God. Mm-hmm. And the argument goes like this, that if God has one will and God's will is his essence, which it is, then it's impossible to think of the persons of the Trinity covenanting with each other. Because that would imply a divided will. Mm-hmm. They say the covenant of redemption implies more than one will in God, that the Father wills one thing, the Son wills another, and the Spirit another. Uh, but I would argue that's just a misunderstanding of uh, what the way the best of our tradition articulated this covenant. Uh, for example, John Owen writes this. He says, the will of God as to the peculiar actings of the Father in this matter is the will of the Father. 
Mm-hmm. And the will of God with regard to the peculiar actings of the Son is the will of the Son, not by a distinction of sundry wills, mm-hmm. but by the distinct application of the same will unto its distinct acts in the person of the Father and of the Son. So notice that it's it's not like this. It's not as though the Son activates the will of God in one sense. Mm-hmm. And the Father activates the one will of God in another sense. It's not like the will of God is a piece of machinery that each person of the Trinity gets to take turns using. That's wrong. That's tearing God apart. Instead, the works of the Trinity are inseparable and indivisible. Mm-hmm. And certain acts of God are are appropriated to a certain per- person in a way that corresponds to that person's eternal subsistence. Mm-hmm. And in Isaiah's servant songs, for example, uh, when it uh, speaks of the son's obedience to the father and the spirit's indwelling of the son, it's really not talking about any odd intra acts of God. It's talking about the incarnation mm-hmm. and Christ's obedience according to his human nature, not any acts within the life of the Trinity itself. And so I don't believe that, you know, that it's wrong to use the terminology, our confessional terminology of a covenant among the persons of the Trinity eternally. Amen. Amen. That, that, that's helpful, brother. Uh, well, you know, let's, after the time we spent uh, speaking of these things, considering them in light of scripture, even maybe addressing some of the debates and controversies that have arisen over the covenant of redemption, uh, let, let's, let's get a little more practical for a moment and reflect on what this means for us as uh, gospel ministers, for those in pastoral ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you see the covenant of redemption impacting uh, our ministry as pastors? Well, I would say if we correctly understand this, what the covenant of redemption is, that it's, it's really at the heart and center of our ministry. Mm that we should preach this covenant as the greatest comfort and delight of believers because it's all about a full and complete salvation. Mm-hmm. So this, this covenant says we don't work to save ourselves. Mm-hmm. We should preach that to the people. You don't work to save yourself. Christ does all the saving. Mm-hmm. This covenant uh, of Christ's works is the reason we can trust him. Mm-hmm. We're not trusting our works. We trust him. It's the foundation of our assurance and of our humility. If we thought we were saving ourselves or if we thought our works contributed to the accomplishment of our redemption, we would be proud, right? Mm-hmm. So, the, the, the way we can be humble is to realize that he has done it all. He mm-hmm. has accomplished the totality of our redemption and he will apply the totality of it as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, pastors should preach this this way. They should also preach and apply the covenant because of all the wonderful graces and gifts that are in it. Above all, what is the gift of the covenant of redemption? It's Christ himself. Mm. It's God the Father is given. It's the Spirit is given. God gives himself to us. He is life. We may think about, you know, that what did Christ accomplish in the covenant of redemption? Well, he purchased eternal life for us. But what's eternal life? It's him. Mm-hmm. He is life that he gives us. So he gives us grace in this life and glory in the next life, and he doesn't revoke any of his gifts in this covenant. That's mm-hmm. what the covenant of redemption is about, and that's how we should preach it pastorally. Yeah. Uh, we can also preach and apply this covenant uh, as it comforts believers who find themselves in all kinds of trials mm-hmm. and difficulties, that, that this covenant encourages the faint-hearted and lifts up the downcast. It shows us that God will definitely give us 
everything he has promised because Christ has accomplished all. Mm. Um, but we can also consider how this covenant of redemption rebukes people who look on their sin as a trivial thing. Mm. So we saw the comfort, the encouragement. There's also a rebuke in it. And that the covenant of redemption shows us that our sin deserves God's infinite wrath and that nothing but the blood of an infinitely valuable person, Jesus, can atone for our sin. Mm-hmm. This covenant of redemption also rebukes those who hope in anything other than Christ mm-hmm. in this covenant. Many people put their trust in uh, false hopes. They yes. trust in living a morally upright life, mm-hmm. or they think they're okay if they're just socially good, or they're advocates of great social causes, but that fails to trust that Christ is our only hope. Mm-hmm. This covenant shows us that he has to do everything for our righteousness and acceptance before God and to merit eternal life for us. Mm-hmm. Um, along the same lines, this covenant is a rebuke to federal visionists and monocovenantalists who mix their own personal holiness or faithful evangelical obedience with Christ's righteousness for justification. Well, here we go, Tom. You're going to get in the controversy, eh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's an old controversy. Yeah, it you is. Know, this is nothing, nothing new at all. And this covenant shows us that our personal holiness can never be required for our justification because it cannot meet the demands of God's just law. This is why justification is by faith, because faith is an empty hand that receives Jesus. Mm -hmm. He's accomplished everything. If you say that your good works are a secondary corroborating means of of your justification, even though you're you're justified on the basis of Christ's righteousness, the question is why? Mm. Why would justice require that? You're trying to, you're, you are diminishing the sufficiency and the value of the completed work of Jesus in this covenant if you add works to your faith and justification in any sense whatsoever. Mm. So, uh, the covenant of redemption rebukes monocovenantalists and federal visionists. Um, along with that, the covenant of redemption corrects those who speak of the covenant of grace like it's a covenant of works. Mm-hmm. And this is a sad thing that people, often say that if if we perform the conditions of the covenant of grace, then we stand. But if we don't perform the conditions of the covenant of grace, then we fall, as though the covenant of grace depends upon our works instead of Christ's works. Right. But no, Jesus paid all that's required in the covenant of redemption. He totally satisfied God's justice. He satisfied God in every respect. And Jesus, through the Spirit, because of what the because of the Father, gives us all the blessings that he requires in the covenant of grace. Hmm. Um, so, continuing to think about pastoral applications, yes, uh, the, the covenant of redemption also speaks to all who hear about their sin. But then to fix their sin problem, they set out to reform their lives, and they think everything's fine because they've changed outwardly. Right, right. But the problem is you can never conform yourself to God's holy law, ever. Mm. You can never actually meet the standard perfectly once. You can never do that. You need Christ and His righteousness in the covenant of redemption. You need Christ to redeem you through His works in this covenant. Um, this covenant also holds out comfort to Christians who are still living under bondage of the law. Mm. So they have a slavish fear of God. There are many Christians who, even after God has freed them from their sins, they, they fear, they live in a slavish fear. Maybe I've not done enough. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe there's something I need to do in myself to accomplish 
uh, acceptance before God. But this covenant gives so much pardoning mercy. Mm-hmm. It says, lean upon Christ, mm-hmm. rest in him and put aside your slavish fear. And because of Christ's work in this covenant, God says, I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Mm-hmm. And this is the basis of our consolation and of our comfort is what Christ has done, not what we do. Uh, the covenant of redemption also warns those who lead ungodly lives. Mm-hmm. So some people will say, well, if the covenant of redemption accomplishes all that God requires for his justice, then why should you live a godly life? Well, this covenant itself re- rebukes you if you think I can continue to live in wickedness or in sin or unbelief. Mm-hmm. Because in light of such graces in this covenant, why would you cling to your wicked lusts over Jesus? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you humble yourself and cast yourself by faith upon Christ who has bought for you so great a salvation, who's such a great Savior, Lord, and King, and hate and forsake your sin because it's displeasing to God? Mm. Christ gives you life. He gives himself to you as a gift of free grace, which he purchased in this covenant. So that means you can take up your cross. Mm -hmm. That means you can lose your life in this world Mm. in order to enjoy him in the next. That means you can keep his commandments no matter what it costs you, because Christ certainly gives you eternal life. You can know he is yours. He'll not leave you or forsake you, which means you can forego earthly pleasures of sin and repent and pursue him. Mm-hmm. Also, people struggle of their, for their assurance right. of, of salvation. How often we hear about that as pastors. <laughs> I know, yes. And and they're afraid they might leave God or run to some other false God. Well, if that's true of you, beloved, then look to this covenant. Christ will win your heart to himself. He'll put the fear of him in your heart, and he won't let you fail. Mm. He'll uphold you by his right hand. His perfect works in this covenant means he will not stop until he finishes all that he began in you, and you can be sure of it and persevere in him to the very end. Amen. You know, it's as as we have been uh, talking, what strikes me is how deeply practical doctrine is. Amen. We, 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 and, and when I think of the church today, uh, with, with all of the, the, the problems we have, how, how much of it is due to a loss? of these kinds of doctrinal truths. There's almost this, this misunderstanding that, you know, we need to focus on what's practical and, and what, what, what's, um, uh, you know, just directly helpful to people uh, from scripture. And we don't need to worry about all that abstract, you know, theology, but what we're finding here is actually the, it's that, well, it's not abstract, but, but, but this revealed truth from God's word Mm -hmm. that indeed, uh, uh, gives that foundation through which, Amen. Uh, we we have these precious uh, truths that, that that then can flower and and, and right. take root and, and flower in the hearts and lives of people, uh, because there there is that foundation uh, that that we have, and and of course that foundation is ultimately Christ, who's revealed through Scripture. Yeah, and we see that in the Bible. So yeah. if you like, if you read. The book of Ephesians, where does it start? With predestination and God's eternal decree. There's a, that's a very abstract idea. Mm. And then when you get to chapter five, he's talking about marriage <laughs> and how to live as a husband and how to live as a wife. There is an absolute connection between predestination and marriage. Mm. 
Mm. And, and Paul speaks that way. We're supposed to think in terms of doctrines then coming down to our personal subjective experience and lived out in our lives outside of ourselves. Mm. So all of it's one whole thing in the Bible. The Bible never rips apart how we're to think, how we're to feel, how we're to live from uh, what today some would say are abstract truths. Mm. The Bible never separates those things. That's right. That's right. Well, for those who would like to continue studying uh, this this doctrine, and and uh, would you rec- what recommended resources would you give for uh, the, you know further study on the covenant of redemption? Yeah, well, one of the uh, most helpful treatments today that's written in very readable language uh, that's a full book length treatment of the covenant of redemption is from J.V. Fesco, mm. and he uh, he wrote the Trinity and the Covenant of Redemption. And I think it, it, the exegesis in there and uh, the reasoning there is very good, and uh, I highly recommend that uh, uh, J.V. Fesco on this doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, one of our own uh, dear Reformed Baptist bro- brothers, Sam Renahan, wrote The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, and that has a very helpful chapter in it on the covenant of redemption, mm-hmm. and I highly commend that to you. The book itself is is about all of God's covenants and his kingdom. And so it's excellent as a whole, but there's a very good succinct chapter, uh, a summary of this doctrine in Sam Renahan's book. So I commend that to you. Uh, Also, if you want to dig back deeper into history and read some of the historical resources on this, John Gill has a very good treatment of the covenant of redemption and his body of divinity, but he calls it the covenant of grace. Mm. And so he put it together a little differently than some of the ways we're speaking of it here. But what he calls the covenant of grace is what we have identified as the covenant of redemption. Mm. John Gill just doesn't divide them. And we might talk about that a little bit when we get into the covenant of grace and and subsequent episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also down the historical path, uh, I recommend the section on the covenant of redemption and Herman Bavink's Reformed Dogmatics. Uh, Bob Inc. is an excellent systematician, and I commend reading him uh, on everything, really. But this is, it's good. Uh, he's good on the covenant of redemption as well. So those are the resources I'd recommend. That's great, Tom. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Modern Merriman podcast on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. If you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. We're hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that Christian leaders and, uh, oh, okay. Blah, blah. <laughs> I knew that was going to happen one of these days. <laughs> Been doing pretty well. All right.